This podcast is sponsored by Delupa. Delupa was founded by a former hedge fund analyst. He didn't have a tool that he trusted to be 99.9% accurate that allowed him to pull the updates directly into his existing models and that had the granularity and KPIs, guidance, and non-GAAP adjustments that he needed. So he built Delupa. Delupa is the fastest growing source for public company data with data available for over 3,000 companies. Hundreds of AI algorithms collect and organize customized company historicals with an accuracy level and depth of data that is higher than anything achievable by other modeling tools. Each data point in is audible to the source. Delupa's Excel plugin is the first to allow you to update your models in your existing format. It's simple and non-invasive. Delupa, Delupa's clients are able to cover more opportunities and generate more ideas. No more data errors, no more Excel monkeying, just the fundamentals. See why equity investors are switching to Delupa. Visit delupa.com slash Y-A-V-P. That's Delupa, D-A-L-O-O-P-A dot com slash Y-A-V-P to learn more. All right. Hello. Welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, follow, subscribe, review, wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on, I believe, for the third time, my friend Chris McIntyre. Chris, how's it going? Good, good. How about you? Doing good, man. Excited to have you back. Let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a quick disclaimer to remind everyone that nothing on this podcast is investing advice. We're not financial advisors. Please do your own due diligence, consult a financial advisor, whatever you have to do. Uh, let's jump right into the stock we're going to talk about on for the third time. Uh, the stock we're going to talk about, we started talking about doing a podcast on this in December, which might have been slightly more timely, but I still okay. think, I, I mean, I know you would agree. It's still a super interesting company. I, I think there are some headwinds to maybe like the trading price that get resolved over time. I think there's a really interesting opportunity, but I'm putting words in your mouth. I'll just turn it over to you. The stock we're going to talk about today is Soterra Healthcare. The ticker there is SHC, and flip it over to you. What's so interesting about it? So I think the high-level trader talk pitch for it is, so Terra Healthcare is a high-quality business that had a legal liability that drove the stock down tremendously. So it was something like $30 a share almost in like early 2021, um, exiting, I guess it was more like late 2020, early, whatever, exactly. It was $30 a share somewhere in that period. They had a legal liability that drove the stock all the way down to like seven to $8 to start the year. It's now up 100% year to date. Um, you and I were both involved before the 100% move. So just pointing that out. Uh, you might have been involved a little bit heavier than I was. I was involved, but you were involved. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Myself but yeah. The, um, the kind of setup though was like, but so it's had this big reweighting, but under, behind it, like as much as we can say that the legal liability probably was exaggerated in the first place, it's very much a clearing event and it's a much cleaner, easier to understand story, but it still has not retraced all the way back to where it was. And underneath what you're getting is a super high quality compounding asset. It's a healthcare and market exposed stock without the risks that are, I think, are higher on most healthcare investors lists, like payer risk and like product cycle and things like that. And so it's really like a stable 10 to 12% top line grower, 50% margins no real economic cycle and currently trading, we could talk exactly about what the right way to think about it was earnings versus EBITDA, but something like 12 times EBITDA, I would say something like 16 times real owner's earnings for an asset that like the comp group is more like, you know, as I was thinking about like, you know, most people that like listen to this podcast all the time, like, you know, some sketchy special situation, off the beat and run kind of stuff. But like the comp group for an asset like this is really the 
stable Sekimen and IRA typically trades 25, 30 times earning stocks, but they don't really ever stop growing because there's no real reason to expect it to stop. And so I think it's a really interesting opportunity to get long sort of a funky security that is actually just not that funky at this point and is just a really high quality business. And so what you do is you get to clip this sort of like 10 to 12% top line grower that theoretically at its current price would be a teens better IRR kind of setup with a strong, I think, reweight catalyst in the next six to 18 months, something like that, where it can get in line with the peer group. And so this is like an example, you know, when all the post IPO like price targets came out and what people were using, people were slapping like 25 times EBITDA bull targets of like $50 a share exiting like 2023. We're at 16, 17. So we're nowhere near like what the bull of bulls would have thought about this asset before the legal liability started. And I think when you think about I'll let you say what I'm When you think about like the pitch, I think there really is like two different sides of the pitch. Like one is which is understanding the legal liabilities, where the simple pitch is they're kind of wrapped up and much easier, I think, to understand now. Um, and then the second pitch is like, this is actually a really good business, and here's how it's going to grow and compound and why it's going to grow and compound. Perfect. So I think we'll revisit the legal in a in a little bit. I mean, if you and I again if we had been doing this podcast. Two months ago, the legal would have been front and center, and then we would have talked business. At this point, the legal about to wrap up, as you said, the stock's up. It's more about understanding the business. So let's talk about why. I I, I don't know if this is the best business in the history of the world, but when I wrap up like the, the combination of the pricing power, the stickiness, the economic insensitivity, uh, the, the moderate growth, like it, it actually kind of is hard for me to imagine that there's a better business than this once you wrap all those characteristics. So I, I want to ask you, like, what is the business and why do you and I both think this is such a good business? So so Terra Healthcare is three separate kind of divisions that are somewhat related, but not totally related. But the main division, which is roughly, say, 70% of profits, and I think is the reason to be the most excited about the company, um, 70% of revenue, 70% of profits, right around there, that kind of general mix, maybe a little bit. The margins are slightly higher in the segment. But what it does is it owns Sterigenics. And so Sterigenics is an outsourced uh, sterilizer of mainly med devices, but also some pharma and a little bit of other stuff. Um, and so the simple high level pitch is what you get is med device growth, which is say like units five, six. So it's like a GDP 1.5 to kind of two X growth story. So when people say like biomedical revolution, you know, like we're all gonna have artificial limbs and live to be 300, I hope. Um, that sort of like, you know, above market secular growth story is med devices, right? Uh, the typical problem you have in med devices though are twofold. So there's some really interesting good things in med devices, but it becomes a much harder business to wrap your head around for two reasons. One, there's like payer risk. So the government, you know, is a huge supplier of insurance through Medicare and Medicaid. And sometimes they change the price. And so like overnight, sometimes you have these things where it comes in and it's like, by the way, we're paying 20% less. And so like, yep. this is a difficult market. You also have like product risk, meaning, you know, what is the next gen heart stent going to be? And like, is this company going to execute or are they going to lose market share? And so these two things make this kind of space a little bit more, you know, challenging to invest in. And just throw one more yep. liability risk too, right? You mentioned yep. heart stents. It, it can turn out two years later, you find out, hey, every heart stent you did, you thought the battery lasted five years, it lasted two years, and you're massively liable for all these heart attacks or there was some lead point, like there's, you can invent a lot of different things and you might laugh, but I can point you to several examples where companies have come and said, hey, 
turns out every installed product we've ever shipped is effective and we are going bankrupt because we have to pay all of these warrant liability claims. Yep. Okay. So that's the difficulty in that space, right? But everyone's attracted to the space because of the above market growth and also because there's no real cycle, right? Like you need a hard stent, you need a emergency, you know, surgery or whatever, like it needs to happen and there's no economic cycle. And so you get the growth without any real, you know, Yep. If interest rates move 2%, hard stand volumes will not matter. Like this, it doesn't matter. Might go you up. Know, you might give a couple people heart attacks and maybe you're going you to increase. Uh, yeah. 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 But so because of that, that's like the challenge in the med device space. But what these guys do is they just sterilize the devices. And so um, I'll get into the algorithm in a second, but I'll explain what the sterilization Perfect. sort of process and what it looks like is. What happens is like this the med device company, Johnson & Johnson, let's just say, Stryker, whoever exactly makes these products and then they need to get them to market. So they got to ship it to a doctor's office or a distributor or a hospital, wherever it's going, right? But before they do that, they have to prove to the FDA how they actually like made sure that there's not bugs all over this. Stuff. So just, you know, bacteria, viruses, mold, whatever exactly, right? So what they do is they physically make the device, they load it on a truck and then they drive it. They can either source, sterilize it themselves or the industry is roughly a little over 50% outsourced. And what they do is they drive it to one of either Steris, which is the other side of the duopoly, or yep. Soterra's um, facilities. And in that facility, they uh, sterilize it using either gamma rays or something called ethylene oxide, which we'll talk a lot later when we talk legal liabilities. And the device gets cleaned there and basically it gets put back onto the truck. And then the med device company actually delivers it to the thing. So, so Terra takes no, or Sterogenic specifically, takes no delivery risk. They take no product like, is this... A good product or a bad product or is it going to lead market share vote takes none of that actual risk and so as a duopoly set up market um they also don't have a real competition angle and we can talk about why there's not competition in the space but there's really only two players um and so what you get is you get med device growth you get uh, a little bit more trend towards outsourcing because the industry is say 55 percent outsourced or yep seven percent now and a decade ago it was say 40 percent forget exactly the numbers, but that's roughly the ballpark. And so you get like a little bit extra uh, unit growth from the outsourcing trend, and then they take three to 5% price. Um, and it's just really one of these like clean businesses where it's very hard to see how that end market doesn't keep growing. And it's also very hard to see how competition would actually come in to serve these products. And so like some of like just the high level stats that I was going through before this that I just like, uh, they have a 100% renewal rate with their top 10 customers or 25, I forget which one they disclosed. Uh, contract length is something like three to five years. 80% uh, of their clients use more than one facility and over 50% use five or more. So you're really built into these guys' networks. And the other thing to also think about is that like, you know, Hartstead, I looked it up, the average price of a Hartstead is something like $1,300. It costs some agency that's trying to complain that hospitals jack up rates, put this statistic out there, right? You might be paying a dollar 70 cents to sterilize it. And so there's no real financial incentive for someone to switch sterilizers. You're built into their network and so it's difficult. And on top of it, like you need to get FDA approval for how you're gonna do it. And so one of the biggest problems is, you know, for some of the, I forget which order is, there's a class one, two, and three like med devices. And I forget which one is the complicated one and which side is the less complicated like gauze or, you know, a syringe or something. But for any of the complicated ones, you you are written for all of them. You're written into it, and for the complicated ones, you're written into it, and it takes 
six months minimum, if not a year plus to actually switch suppliers, which has a twofold, we're getting into some details here, but like a twofold like benefit to the business, which is one, no one ever switches. And two, you need to offer redundancy if you want to bid for larger contracts. Or yep. For, you know, if I'm the CFO or I'm head of sterilization or whatever for Johnson & Johnson, I don't want to have 70 different contact people. Having one or two is ideal for me to simplify my world, right? And so there's really only two people. I mean, not really. There are only two people who can offer redundant things. And so the point being that, like, if there's an earthquake or a storm or a fire or something happens at one of the facilities that we are using to clean our, uh, to sterilize our heart stents, written into the FDA approval will be the other backup alternative facilities that we can then ship product to so we don't have to pull the product from market. And so if you're looking about it from the competition angle, you know, if we get together and we raised a hundred million dollars to open, you know, one of these facilities, right? Reality is like, we're gonna have to bid for one contract to maybe to start it, but we can't offer redundancy. And it just becomes this very complicated thing. And then also just to round out a little more on the, the contract side or the, the business side, they actually run, so Terra, Sterogenics, runs the facilities basically 24 seven. So like they take deliveries at like three in the morning, like literally on Sundays, you know? And the in-house provider, if you wanted insights for Johnson Johnson, we have stuff at our facilities, right? We don't, are not gonna be able to run those because we don't have the volumes to run them 24 seven. So like, not only is it more redundancy built into the network, it also is actually cheaper because they're gonna have the same basic machinery running 24 seven instead of running 40% of the time. And yep. so it's this very, you know, you're, you're basically like have like huge customer lock in and like, it's also cheaper, literally, um, probably, you know, we'll see where pricing goes over a period of time or whatever, but like, it's just this whole, it has a, just a great momentum around it and a lot of like barriers and moats. And so this business is one of the more bankable, I think, you know, it's hard to know what'll happen in 10 years, but like that med devices are up, I think is highly probable, you know, like one of the- And highest. that we'll be sterilizing med devices is also yeah. highly probable. Yeah, it's there are, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that we're not doing some version of all of this. And there's no real nothing happening that would delay the trajectory really of like this 10% top line growth, if anything, accelerating because of their current growth investment. But yeah. That was an absolutely great overview. You hit on many of the angles that I wanted to in the uh the Modi section. I mean, hopefully people, if they're listening, they can understand why we think it's such a good business, right? Because of everything you just said. But I just want to pull a little bit more on the why it's so hard for a new build competitor to come in, because I think this will also help us transition into a little bit of the growth and the growth CapEx angle. And it's, look, if you build a facility, it's all about utilization, right? So if you and I went and built a facility, or uh, these guys are out there building new facilities right now, it's not just that you can't go to Johnson & Johnson and say, hey, all the gauze that you're giving, all the gauze or all the hips that you're getting sterilized at uh, one of the sterogenics facilities, switch them over to us. They can't do that because they have to interrupt their supply lines, get an FDA approval. It's not just that. It's that they ha you have to go get new products. So you have to build out these things. So if we went and built something, we'd have zero capacity. So do you want to talk about how they kind of, when they're doing their growth capex, how they get the facilities filled and how they know that that growth capex is going to have things to sterilize there. I think I kind of jumped into a few places, but I think you'd see where I'm going. Maybe I'm, I'm a little bit, to me, like they basically like they built out a facility because they have all the relationships and all the network and everyone sort of knows them. And they're just like, because the industry is effectively sold out right now. And so they need, there needs to be a growth capex. So, uh, we're, we're, so 
I guess where I was trying to go is when they say, hey, we're going to build a new facility, what they've done is they've pre-sold, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or feel free to jump in at any time if I'm wrong. They basically pre-sold, I think it's 50% of the capacity before they even put boots in the ground, right? They've got Johnson & Johnson and they say, hey, it's 2023. We're going to start building a facility that's going to come online in 2025. Uh, We think we can do 100,000 units per day in this facility. Will you take 10,000? Johnson Johnson says yes. And before they even start building, they've got 50,000 units of the 100,000 sold. And I was saying, if you and I went and did that, like we wouldn't have the relationship. So we basically have to spec build a sterile, sterile facility because Johnson Johnson is not going to come and do it, like agree to future products with us. So that's kind of where I was driving at it. Maybe I was yeah. just being a little bit too cavalier on it. No, no, no. That's, uh, that's true. I, you know, like there, it's almost like, I feel like I'm overselling my talking about like competition, which is like a weird way to phrase it. But like, yeah. we're, like you're like dealing with like the, very small amounts right so like there are like some startup x-ray facilities which is like one percent of the market so it's like a really tiny part of this market right so i know that they like what they yeah they try like the startup guys try to like find like a a guy to have one contract to take 25 percent of volumes but the reality is like it's hard it's got to be super not that critical you know what i mean it's just it's and like there's also like on top of it like when these guys do their growth capex they absolutely are like it's booked like they book with enough room that they, they, you know, they have a plan for like how we're going to grow and expand our footprint over five plus years, 10 years, whatever. But, you know, we're not executing on all the 10 year plan at the same time. Um, so they absolutely are sold out to start. I mean, like the industry is actually really, really quite tight right here, which is why, you know, we can start talking about quarters at some point in this, but like, it does sound like if anything, the 10%, I think we constant currency sales are like 10.4%. 7.2 or something like that like if anything i'm like you could maybe get up towards like 13 14 in like a couple of years just price plus volume growth um but yeah no they're they're deeply sold out the other thing to think about too because I, I i think a lot about like it's like that buffett thing like if you had a billion dollars could you get in there whatever size dollar amount saying right but like in this industry too like if you think about it it's extremely like niche and so there's not that many people that actually are employed in and, and have the knowledge to literally help you build it out. So even if we raised a billion dollars and we were going to build 10 plants on spec or 12 or whatever that math comes out to. I know, I know that Tatera says they can build 1.40 million, but like we might not be as good at it and whatever you want to talk about. But even if you could do it, which is like a long shot, moonshot pitch with, un, you know what I mean? Like I, it's hard to see how it happened. I don't know that you could literally staff the facilities to create the third competitor. You know what I mean? Like it's just, there's not really, it might be, it feels like a impossible task and it might literally be an impossible task to actually do it. And as you said, like Johnson Johnson, the cost of this thing is a dollar, right? How are we going to get them to commit to us where we're going to go, Hey, you're sterilizing stuff for a dollar per unit. We'll do it for 95 cents. And Johnson Johnson, you know, it's that famous thing. Oh yeah. We're saving money on safety. Like, sterilization the saving five cents per unit on a thousand dollar unit is absolutely nothing but the downsides of we sit we ship it to chris and andrew's bootleg sterilization and they they can't get it done so we're not selling these thousand dollar units or even worse they forget to sterilize it and there's you know a hip implant into somebody that's got bacteria on it like it's just one of those things the downside versus the upside versus the cost it's going to be really hard unless chris and andrew have a lot of background and a lot of money just going to be really hard to get somebody to agree to go to a, a new startup competitor yeah which is why it seems like a pretty cushy duopoly yep so. so let's talk about 
you know, I, I think if I, I'm trying to remember the quote from the Q4 call, but they said, hey, you know, since I, I think the CEO said, since I got here in 2006, we've got like 15 years track record of mid single digit plus organic growth. I think their long-term kind of, uh, their long-term algorithm, if you will, is about 10% growth coming from some pricing and some volume. Do you want to talk about just that 10% growth, the pricing, the volume, particularly, I think the pricing, because that's the most interesting part of the story. Yeah, so like, um, so they say, they, they give blended guidance across the three segments when they say pricing, right? Because they guide to like three to 5% pricing with like one of the segments being at the high end, one of the other segments being at the low end and StarJX being in the middle. Um, we should talk about the other segments at some point, but they're, they're good, but not nearly as interesting. Um, but I think that the, the argument around pricing is really, which ties into the legal liability is, look, the, there's a capacity shortage because of some of the legal liability stuff on ethylene oxide, which is half of the industry, let's say, and it's, it's at the industry. Um, because of that legal liability, like there's just going to be a real hesitance to see any more insourcing. And there's going to be, if anything, an acceleration towards outsourcing. So like capacity constraint, more demand than ever two players, regulatory burden going up equals better pricing over time. Like it's not much more sophisticated a thought than that. Um, we'll see exactly how it rolls through. I think to them, they want to keep their relationships on the right pace. So I don't like anticipate them jacking prices 10% and inviting turmoil into their, you know, they might be able to, but I, to me, I'm like, I think of anything like you could definitely see over time. I mean, you know, if you do the consultant calls, right? Like it's all like people are like, yeah, we, they, no one wants to do this anymore. And they're happy to pay the two cents extra to not run the legal liabilities. Because if you think about it, like the quote, like, you know, like, does it make your beer better? Right. Like the Anheuser-Busch, which Amazon loves, but like, you know, sterilizing a hard stand in house, in source, in house, excuse me, uh, by Johnson Johnson's not their core competency. They don't know about it. There's these lawsuits, you know, that these guys, so Tara just had to pay $408 million for like, there's not a whole lot of reason to push back on price and there's not any real competition. And so I'd absolutely think over time, pricing going up is part of the story. Yep. You don't, you don't have to, at this price, you don't have to believe that to get along it, but like, it's definitely a part of the story. So I think some of the pushback, I mean, I mean a year ago, the pushback would have been, hey, they lost the legal case. And we'll get to the legal case in a second because it is important to the go forward story. But some of the pushback a year ago would have been they lost the legal case and bankruptcy, turmoil, all this sort of stuff. I think the first pushback a lot of people would have when they look at this idea is they're going to say, all right, Andrew, Chris, great. I'm convinced this is a really good story. It's a really good business. But it's trading low teens EBITDA. You know, I, I'm kind of looking at my 2020 numbers about 20 times unlevered free cash flow. There is some growth capex in there we can talk about. But mm -hmm. people might say, hey, Andrew, Chris, this isn't early 2021 anymore, right? 20 times unlevered free cash flow for a great company, like that, that's about bearish. And so people would probably say more, what's the opportunity cost of me buying this versus something else? Am I really going to generate a lot of alpha at kind of that valuation? How would you talk to people about that? I think you have to like, so if the way I kind of, I point people towards like two directions, one of which is like, okay, so walking through that math, this is roughly speaking, like trading in a market multiple, give or take, right? 
stock market does not have a 50% operating margin with 10% top line growth and no discernible earnings cycle. Like that is not what the US stock market looks like. Yep. So on a pure long, short, paired off, market neutral, beta, whatever you want to call it book, right? Like long $100 or so terahead, short $100 SPY, I think is an absolute alpha value add trade, right? Just on alone now. The second thing I point people towards, 10% top line growth and 50 plus percent operating margins is Visa. And let's call Visa, MasterCard, like the, the, the everyone agrees are great businesses that grow forever. And we all understand why, because we're going from cash to not cash, right? Like it's not, you know, with no competition for those two guys. Uh, I think Visa trades like right now, like something I haven't written down over here. It trades, I believe it's like 28 times forward and like 20 plus times EBITDA. Their margins are slightly higher. They're like 65% or something. But like, that's kind of the thing. And so I think a lot of guys who spend some time looking at off the run sort of value stuff, like end up looking at like companies that aren't nearly as high quality as this, right? And so it, it, it clouds like a lens because you're like, well, why wouldn't I, I can buy this like offshore oil servicer for three times EBITDA and you're like- Hey, hey, Chris, come on. Don't call anybody out on the podcast. I'm not calling anyone out on, I own Polaris at a point. Um, but like, this is not a business that's going to see like down 50 EBITDA every now and then. Like, you know what I mean? That's not part of this business. And so the peer group for this to me is like, you know, Moody, Cintas, Echolabs, yep. Rollins, like these, you know, Eurofins, which is a different, it's a very comparable story actually trades in Europe, but it, Eurofins has a margin issue in it. But like, you know, there's a company called Stericycle. Like go look at these like charts. Stericycle ran out of growth as part of their problem. But like, these things can compound at a high rate for a long period of time because they're growing revenues 10 plus percent. And they're also not the hyper growth ones where like there's going to be a rapid co competition out of nowhere, right? Like this is not, you're not going to have a TikTok show up out of nowhere and just blow up potentially the market. And we're like, oh, I thought there were three players. And now there's four. Like that's not like what's going to happen here. This is a slower, but still much, still well above GDP growth kind of company. And so to me, the right, peer group is there and then on a i think it's very very likely you will ultimately reweight towards like 25 plus times earnings i think that's like a very high probability bet and so part of my thesis is making that bet but even if it weren't i'm like i mean i go to sleep we can talk about what, what i go to sleep at night feeling safe about or whatever um whatever however i'm supposed to be phrasing that but like this is definitely not a business that like anything happening in the world is going to like freak you out about what is actually happening here and is this business going to implode or anything like that it's not one of those businesses and so i am absolutely just ha happy to sit here and clip my five percent or what is six percent let's say levered free cash flow return plus you know my 11 percent top line growth or and, even growth whatever you want to say and one of the things you said in there like like this is trading at about average market multiple as you said like a visa or a mastercard trade for five x the multiple five, five extra turns of the multiple ish that these guys trade for Marriott and hilton probably the same thing and like Marriott and hilton have economic sensitivity and there's the risk you know a few years ago everybody was worried airbnb was going to take them down they're, they're competing in a oligopoly not a duopoly visa and mastercard you know 18 months ago everybody said bitcoin and all these crypto players are going to come from like there is some technological risk with with shc with serialization like as you laid out, duopoly, 
these things are locked in. It's really hard to say that there's any technological risk. I, I know some people have talked about some things, but you know, like there's a reason we use ethylene oxide. It's it's very difficult to sterilize a lot of these things in mass as cheaply as we do. It's it's hard, just hard to see any way this business goes that goes away. And as you said, like if all of that takes care of the downside and the upside is you've got a five or six percent bond that's growing ten percent plus. Uh, some of that, I said, unlevered free cash flow. That's all the capex they're going to do this year. They're investing capital. We can talk about how good the returns on capital they think when they build a new facility, how that drives growth. Like that, mm-hmm. that's a pretty nice. The downside's taken care of, so there should be pretty good upside over there. Yeah, I think that's right. Someone commenting on Twitter, um, what obviously had done work, right? Had like a nice little um, blurb about it, but it, you know, talking about like, well, if ethylene oxide gets replaced, and it's like, but even if it's like all those scenarios are like minimum a decade like yeah. it's not none of there's no rapid change happening here you know unless a miracle occurs like it's not there is not a whatever you think about like visa and mastercard there are tons of players and payments and tons of turnover and tons of little parts that are changing at any even time and lots of growth capex going into it or venture capital dollars or however you want to phrase it like those markets are inherently much more competitive than what you're looking at here which is you know, there's not a lot of demand for a third player, and there's almost no scenario that a third player comes along. There's just, it's 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 a it took a long time to for this industry to evolve in this way, and it's kind of like one of those things where like it's sort of like Moody's, right? Where it's like I don't know that it's the and this is actually worse because I actually don't think there's any real argument that Sotera and Sarah uh, are like bad or anything like that. But like Moody's people are like, you know, maybe it could be a better system, but like it's hard to imagine anything replacing it now and so that's where we're going like yep. you know what i mean and so there's just not it's hard to really imagine how something comes in which is a very valuable commodity in my opinion and so like i understand people not willing to bank on 25x plus earnings multiples right and frankly like if this thing reweights to 30x tomorrow like akatar partnerships has several shares for sale for anyone looking to purchase that price um but like you know it's just a rare commodity and it's very rare i think to get a shot at these sort of type businesses like at anything re- resembling a reasonable multiple yep like it is you almost always have to pay up for it and so what you end up injecting when you have that strategy is you end up injecting one it lowers the return because the capital returns are inherently lower by being a higher multiple and then two like if you get it wrong you lose a lot more money you know like that's the problem is like oh we buy something at 35x and it turns out that like there's actually a pricing problem and suddenly it's like 14x you're like okay, that's like a down 60 on a downer you know what i mean well, that's a huge blow up with steroids i mean even like what's it going to trade like commodity chemical multiples like 12x like where where is you know what i mean like what why would okay um you know so i just think it's a as much as it's up and i appreciate that people don't like to buy things up that's like the opportunity is like people don't like to buy things up and that's why it's still attractive I agree. And I think there's also, look, when the when the legal liability was out there, uh, there, this was, it was very difficult for anybody who wanted to buy a great business to be here because, you know, we should start shifting and talking about the legal liability. Yeah, yeah. It, it, a couple months ago, you had to be a legal analyst to be involved here. Now, mm-hmm. even though it's a couple, it's two months after the decision, uh, the settlement got made, like, I do think there's still... A, if you're looking to invest in a great company, you probably want the settlement to be completely done, not 99% done. And we'll talk about completely done in a second. But B, there's still probably a flip of 
the people who bought the shares like at the height of the crisis, there's still probably some shares to get sold. This stock, we should probably talk about ownership, is only 33% or so of it floats. So, you know, maybe the largest fundamental guys, this isn't the top, top of their list. They'll get around to it eventually. So I still think you've got a tailwind as the hands transition to where they should go. But to, let, let's switch over to the legal liabilities. Uh, we've alluded to them a lot. Why don't you give a, a brief background of what these are, what happened, how this resolved earlier this year, and uh, what this looks like going forward? Sure. So do you think I should do like the historical perspective on how we got here, or should I do like an asset by asset? We, 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 um... we probably don't need to start in the 80s asset by asset, but probably just focus like, you know, what the government said a few years ago, how that impacted sure. Illinois and uh, what happened last year and this year. Sure. So ethylene oxide is one of the ways that they sterilize stuff. The other stuff uh, ways are gamma rays, which is um, they, they make pencils with that you take the tip off and it blasts radiation at it and they like run a conveyor belt under them. Right. Literally kind of what you're doing. Um, and then you have ethylene oxide. You also have UV, which is kind of the same thing as gamma ray. And then you have ethylene oxide, which is a gas that you basically, what you do is you take a pallet of whatever med device, you stick it in a chamber, you close the doors, you fill it with, um, I believe actually they fill it with like nitrogen, and then they insert a little ethylene yep. oxide gas into the chamber. And the ethylene oxide is a, so ethylene oxide is like a, it's like a pesticide. It's a toxic gas that kills things, right? And so you stick it in the chamber, and it's really useful because it goes through plastic packaging. I, why am I still giving the fundamentals? We're on the legal stuff. Um, but like it, you fill the chamber with it and then you let the uh, gas burn off and then you take the stuff out and it's clean. Um, what happens is ethylene oxide is a known carcinogen. Like it's a, it's a dangerous substance. You use it to kill stuff, right? And so people study this stuff for all the time. So there's all kinds of OSHA guidelines around like what are the hours? How much exposure do you have? How do you clean it? And it's mainly that study for the whole history of the industry has been focused on, you know, safety for workers, right? It's also explosive too. So like, you know, like the, there's a lot of rules and regulations trying to protect people from using stuff. And just going back, when we talked about what a good business is, we didn't talk about, hey, they're dealing with the carcinogen explosive uh, poison. Like the, yeah. those all, that adds a lot of regulatory burden that increases the moat where Chris and Andrew probably aren't going to be able to start up a business uh, competing yeah. with these guys. Yeah, exactly. What also happens, though, is in the background of that is some of the ethylene oxide ends up emitted into the air around the facilities, right? Um, and ethylene oxide is naturally occurring, actually. So it's in particularly, like, say, exhaust fumes. Um, so I'll, I'll put a pin right here in this moment. So just you and I, you're in Manhattan, right? So Yep. Yeah. So we're actually being exposed to more ethylene oxide than the people in this lawsuit were exposed to. Just as a side note, just this is, Pin, I'll take the pin out right there. Just but so it's naturally occurring; it's all around. So there's always a backbone level of ethylene oxide. But over time, the EPA, who's very concerned with all carcinogens, right? Like this is obviously something you'd be looking at, and has you know we live. Thankfully, we live in a country that has good safety ratings, right? Like no one wants poisoned water, no one wants poisoned, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what they did is in 2016 they did a study, um, and they basically put out. And they could, they tried to conduct uh, an estimate of expected cancer cases due to ethylene oxide in the environment around certain facilities, right? And we can talk about the study in a second. But what it did is it effectively kind of like put notice that like, hey, maybe we need some stricter safety ratings around emissions from these plants. 
And I think it ticked off, I forget the exact number of plants that it, it said had an issue, but of, so Terra's at the times eight ethylene oxide plants, three of them were on the list that said it had an issue, right? And it's worth just putting a pen there, like they have subsequently like put out further notice and all that kind of stuff. And the other five facilities of, of sterogenics that use ethylene oxide have remained not on the list of problems. But it, it, it hit these three facilities, right? One of which is in Illinois, one of which was in Georgia, one of which is in New Mexico. And so because of that, and so there was a CDC study on top of it, ignoring whatever that is. Um, because of that, it started litigation at those three facilities. Um, and in particular, what you ran into is personal injury litigation, mass tort personal injury litigation. And I, I, I do a good amount of legal liability work as the fund, right? Um, and so of all of the legal liabilities out there, personal injury mass tort litigation is by far like the most potentially explosive litigation. Um, because reality is once you get in front of a jury and you have someone who seems very sympathetic to something bad happened to, and then you have the big mean company who has the emails that are bad, it starts off a whole thing. And so what ended up happening though, is they had a personal injury litigation advanced in Illinois. They had personal injury litigation that will advance in the future in Georgia. And then in New Mexico, the plant is in the middle of the desert, so there's no one to sue them. Um, and so there's regulatory actions around the New Mexico plant, um, but don't, for now, it's not gonna surprise yep. to some enormous thing. Um, so for now, just leave New Mexico off. So what the main issues were, were the plant in Illinois and the plant in Georgia. And the difference between the two plants has everything to do with Illinois being the most basically punitive, uh, the most uh, plaintiff friendly jurisdiction in America. Uh, so as I like to phrase people, the issue is really not the science behind what actually it said. Hence, like, go back to the pen that you and I are being exposed to more ethylene oxide right at this moment than this plant was actually spewing into the environment around there. Um, so it's really not a matter of like science and all this kind of stuff. And if you want to go, people are like, hey, that doesn't sound right. The EPA has like webinars where like they're like, because they put this stuff out and they know that they freak neighborhoods out. And so like, you can go watch people from the EPA who are making these rules be like, you know, 40% of people get cancer lifetime exposure. If one in 100,000 people gets cancer in addition, you're really talking about an extremely low threshold that we're at right like they're not like that concerned about it. they're like don't eat red meat like that's like higher way higher on the list in this facility right if if i but, remember correctly yeah. the epa and what they said was the people around willowbrook like there's it might have caused like one extra cancer case every three years for all around willowbrook if i'm remembering correctly and that, yeah, that was like within that. the realm of rounding errors so it was like very shoddy science on that but yeah yeah so it's it's really it's to understand, just to talk about the science for half a second. Like, the EPA is not like going, like, hey, is this like 50% safe or is this 70% safe? They're going, is this 99.9999% safe or is this 99.9999999% safe? Right? We're not interested in the 40, 60, 80% safe realm, right? Those are non starters. So, because of that, they conduct theoretical experiments that are obviously and intentionally completely unrealistic because we're trying to be extra, extra safe. So for instance, they, the study as a base level, it assumes that someone's, so what they did is they collected 35 air samples to measure how much ethylene oxide is coming out of the plant. And then they only used the two highest concentrations. The two highest concentrations occurred on days when the wind wasn't blowing because it's a gas, so it blows off immediately, right? 
so they used the two IA samples and then they conducted a study thinking what would happen to someone who lived there for 70 years from birth till 70, 24 seven, 365. No one has ever lived in a single place for 365 days a year, 24 seven for 70 years and the wind never blew. It's an obviously and intentionally ridiculous kind of threshold to make sure we're extra extra safe. And what they're looking for is like, hey, maybe this is on the border. Hey, could you guys like spend like $10 million extra and just make this extra safer? Yeah. Like that's like the regulatory burden. They're not like, oh my God, this is asbestos and like we're actually killing people. That is not what we're talking about. But what happens is this gets in the hands of personal injury litigation. And we can talk about what mass tort personal injury litigation looks like in the US, but it's this whole big industry, the highest paid lawyers. And you know, no other country really has a lawyer that makes $100 million a year. But in America, being a lawyer at points is an entrepreneurial endeavor, not a civil servant endeavor. And so it is what it is. And Illinois is basically one of the most plaintiff-friendly jurisdictions. And so what ended up happening is these cases, despite the sort of weak science, you know, in Illinois, you're allowed to assert a, and a single molecule could have caused your cancer, which, of course, a single molecule could never have caused your cancer. That's not at all how that works. But you're allowed to say it to a jury. That's what it is, right? When, when the reality I is... Yeah. Oh, I just when I was doing the research here, and I think it's not just Illinois, but this particular jurisdiction within Illinois is the most plaintiff friendly in the nation, I think. And if I remember correctly, one of the quotes I heard when I was doing research was somebody said, uh, look, I've worked with insurance brokers and they there's only one rule they have. We will not write insurance within it was Cook County, if I remember correctly. We will not write it within Cook County, Illinois, because the jurisdiction is just too plaintiff friendly. We just can't write it there. So like they're, they're willing to underwrite, you know, like water parks for drunk people. Like they'll underwrite that just fine. They just won't underwrite Cook County, Illinois, because the rules are so bad there. So just to put in perspective, like kind of what what jurisdiction you're dealing with, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And so and it's why, like, the easy way to, to do, deal with it is just to zoom out. And you're like, look, it is a Cook County. If you get it, if you get it to so the specific thing is causality which we'll talk about i wish actually talk about but like if you get it to jury um in that jurisdiction it is a problem it's just what it is it has nothing to do with the science it has nothing to do with truth it has everything to do with how you know how it works in illinois um and so specifically though there's two plants left right and so the illinois plant the simple way to wrap it up there is like they settled um and so the settlement came in and this is like, I think people weren't as, weren't as familiar with these kind of liabilities before. We're very worried about these explosive outcome kind of scenarios. And the reality is like, there are reasonably well settled ranges for where these things tend to come out. Um, can I, can I it, yeah. they do settle, but can I put, they lose their first case, right? For about mm -hmm. the, the, over, yeah. the ruling is about 350 million. And that's when the stock falls off a clip because they lose one case. They've got, call it a thousand cases to round up outstanding left. And people quickly start doing the math and say, if every case they're going to lose for 100 million, 200 million, 300 million times a thousand cases, not only would this case be bank, this company be bankrupt, but every company in America would basically be bankrupt facing that liability. Yeah. So they lose that case. They win their second case. They take the first loss, the second win. And earlier this year, they announced the settlement for 400 plus million. And then I'll flip it over to you to kind of start talking about the settlement. Yeah, yeah. So they announced the settlement. Um, very specifically, I think it's worth just—is it worth mentioning the, the appeal? Well, might as well. I'm talking about it already. Uh, 
So they had an appeal bond. And so very much the timing of it is, look, they had to post 150% of the judgment, which would be roughly $500 million at like, say like 10% interest, whatever, just to make simple math. So we're going to do this for two years. So suddenly we're like, we're going to have to pay like 50 to $100 million in like interest to settle this case. Yep. The overall settlement's $400 million. You start kind of staring at the numbers and you're like, how much is this worth really to fight? Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things the plaintiff's attorneys, if you're ever involved in litigation, figure out how much money it'll cost the other side to fight you is like a huge part of the battle. And so it just made sense that they were like, hey, do you really want to go down this path or can we just let's just admit that like we're not going to get out of it. like so Tara at this point we're not getting out of this for less than 200 million bucks it's what it is let's let's just get it done and like you know maybe we paid so Tara's paying maybe the high end of like typical settlements but like not the high high end but the high end of like let's say not specifically asbestos cancer settlements right but whatever it's not that much money we're talking about 40 million dollars is a lot of money a lot of money but we're talking about like one year's free cash flow. And so ultimately, if we're squabbling over like a quarter's free cash flow is the bid ass between the plaintiffs and the defendants, it was like, let's just get this done and get this story back on the road, right? So they they hit the bid and that's where we're at, right? And so talking about Illinois, the steps left are actually settling the case. Um, I think there's actually a chance you get paid on the settlement finalizing. Um, the, the settlement finalizing is an interesting catalyst, I think, because People are like, oh my God, they have to get 99% approval. And it's like, the, the, so Tara, it was Did like, I, you need to get 99% because like, that's, sorry, go ahead. Let me just pause you there because we, we haven't said what that 99% approval is. So they announced the settlement in January and they say, hey, we're paying, it's a little over $400 million to settle the cases. And one of the clauses in that settlement is, hey, in order for this settlement to be in play, we have to settle, uh, as you said, 99% of the plaintiffs have to opt into this thing. I think it's, there can only be 12 cases that don't opt into the settlement if more than 12 cases don't opt in. So Tara has the right to break the settlement, not the plaintiff. So, so Tara can look and say, oh, it was 13. Okay, we'll take that. Or they can look and say, it was 13. It was 20. It was 100. We're out. Not enough of these cases have settled. So please continue. Yeah, exactly. So it's this weird, it's a weird catalyst where like, it's, it's, what happened, the reason you settled is because of the one case that had the $500 million appeal bond. And yep. so the way it also works in these cases is the plaintiffs pick the order, right? So from a factual standpoint, the plaintiffs won their first case for a massive number and lost their second best case, right? So with that kind of hit ratio, the bottom 50% of cases are pretty, they're not going to be what you want to take to court, right? Um, and so the point is that like in the, I think, unlikely scenario that the settlement breaks, they've already settled the, the top cases. So what will be left is actually a much weaker batch of cases, which is why I am sure the plaintiff's attorneys are informing their clients, you're probably going to get much less than this if you actually go to court and it'll take a long time, which is why ultimately they are pretty good at getting people to settle. So I think the most likely scenario that is that it settles. If it were not to settle, it is the funniest thing I was saying, it's a, it's a funny catalyst because the stock is likely down and it is... All, almost unquestionably an EV positive announcement. It's like, a yep. fun, it has this little duality. So I think it's worth like paying attention to see if the settlement doesn't get to these things. I mean, it's obviously worth paying attention to home, but like, so think about it, it's very likely to work out with the settlement. And the reality is if they don't get 99%, it's likely that the settlement will still occur at a lower number relatively quickly after it breaks. So it but it will be a headache. It will certainly yeah. be a headache. It will be a headache. And if it were to occur, it's, it's a buying opportunity. Um, in my opinion. Um, but that's basically, once you are done that settlement, 
there will in the future, as people develop um, cancer in the future in this area, like there's really the two cancers of breast cancer and um, blood cancers. Um, and so um, there will be future cases, but like the farther out you get from like having been exposed in the eighties when it was a more at risk, the weaker the cases get over time. And also you're talking about probably like, I don't know, say it's, I think 10 or 20 cases a year would be like a good higher kind of like, you know, think about that. Like the settlements, the real settlement average underneath is probably $400,000. This company does like $600 million a year to even let's say like fast forward one year. So you're like, we're not really talking about a needle moving number of cases, right? Like this is going to be a small trickle future problem, not exactly sure what's going to happen. So while the litigation will continue, the bulk of it has been settled. Like 99% of it has been settled, right? I think we've hit the Illinois one mm -hmm. well. You talked about New Mexico. There's not a lot going there. I do think a couple of people who've uh, looked at this stock maybe haven't fully dove in. They look and say, all right, well, they settled at Illinois, but there's still several cases outstanding in Georgia. And I think mm -hmm. both you and I think, hey, Georgia, yeah, they're probably going to lose some money there. But the Georgia... It is not a big concern, right? The headline number for Illinois was the first case they lost for like, I think it was 360 million all in. That's not going to happen in Georgia. I think they're going to be fine in Georgia, but why don't you just quickly address the Georgia risk here? So Georgia, so the big, one of the things that makes Illinois plaintiff friendly, which does not work in Georgia, is that in Illinois, they, they allow you to go to court alleging one molecule can cause it, right? So the point is that like, you have a carcinogen and we, you establish that it can cause cancer you then have to show how it did cause it. It's called causality. You're like, okay, this causes cancer. How did it cause your cancer? So there's causality generally, and then there's causality specifically like your specific cancer. In Illinois, you can be like, one molecule did it. So it's like, there's no real like, we could talk about what science you get to prevent, but like at terms, you're gonna have to go to court basically, because if you can, if that's good enough to get to court, we're getting to court on any of these things, right? In federal cases, um, I believe it's called Daubert, um, is how you set up causality. So it's not enough to say it caused my cancer. You have to explain to me how it caused my cancer. And there's no studies that explain to you how it caused cancer. So like ethylene oxide litigation has been thrown out several times in federal courts because of it doesn't meet the next standard to actually go to trial. Um, Georgia law is much sim more similar to federal law than to Illinois law. And so it is gonna be harder for those 300 cases in Georgia to actually get to court. So I wouldn't be, I would, surprised nothing about it will surprise me but like i definitely think the odds are over 50 percent. they actually don't even end up getting into court because i think there's good they're gonna just you saw it, it for people who kind of follow the news on this was it zantac where like the judge there was like whatever that case is the judge was like yep you don't have enough stuff to go to court because the reality is once you go to court sort of like this play where there's like you present an expert we present an expert and we act like it's 50 50 but if the actual evidence is like 90 10 putting two people in the stand has inherently unfair to the, like, the defendant, right? Because it's like, this is already misrepresenting what the odds are, right? So that's why like, it, it, I think it's unlikely to go to court in Georgia. There's only 300 cases in Georgia. And um, the other interesting thing is that Georgia has the $250,000 cap yep. of punitive damages. Yep. Um, there are some people will look at it and there are cases that are bigger, but I think Georgia, the three standards are you can't be drunk, which doesn't apply here. Um, you can't be intentional, which is like I stabbed someone to death. So it's not apply here. And then the other one is a product liability. And there's no product that we're talking about. It's, in, it's the emissions, not the actual product. Yep. So there's, there, there's an absolute cap on punitive damages that will apply here. And so, you know, 
it's just not going to turn into they're not going to get four hundred thousand dollars a case they're going to get legal fees you know if they get to court they'll get legal fees when we started this, we were like, we're briefly going to address the the legal case. And then, of course, you know, the legal case, I, I think it's also because both you and I get a little excited remembering the diligence on it. But uh, we, we spent yeah. 20 minutes on, on the legal case. So, look, at this point, I think we've addressed, hopefully we've addressed a few things. We've talked about multiple. We've talked about business quality. I think if I had some of those, I'd say this is a fantastic top 1% style business at a market multiple price. Uh, we've talked about the legal cases and how there are some catalysts to putting those behind them. You know, the settlement getting finalized in May or June, uh, the Georgia cases hopefully getting dismissed. I think we've talked about all those. I just want to talk a, a little bit about the go for it, right? Like it's entirely possible you and I are just sitting here holding our shares and for the next, you know, 10 years, we're uh, for the next three years, we're just compounding and the multi market multiple keeps expanding. But there's a couple of other catalysts here. So I, I want to talk about those. Uh, lawsuits getting dismissed, but the main one I look is I say, hey, the private equity owners here still own about 67% of the company. I think they've been involved in Soterra for about 10 years at this point. And you have to look at that ownership, the fact the company IPO'd a few years ago and say, hey, they probably want to exit at some point. So, you know, is there a catalyst around the private equity exiting? Is there, you know, a, a strategic merger or selling this a private equity company? These guys just Tendering for a bunch of shares. I, I don't know, but talk about that stuff. Yeah, I think like you certainly have an aligned ownership and board structure, right? Like, you know, it's a controlled company, two owners. I believe it's like roughly 60% still owned by the private equity firms, GTCR and Warburg. Top tier, well-respected, intelligent private equity ownership. It's not, you know, you who's or whatever the term. Um, and so... You know, you have a very good setup in that, like the people in charge of the stock understand it. We talked a little bit before we hopped on the call about how like the, the background checks are that like they intended actually to sell this to another private equity firm. Um, but because the legal liabilities, it's just an awkward spot to sell 100% of the business summit. So they IPO'd it instead. Um, so the point being that like- No, no smart, yeah. no sophisticated buyer will take the whole thing. So maybe sell a, sell a chunk yeah. of it to unsophisticated buyers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, you know, it, it's a very, so the point being that like, it was a likely already shop. So there's plenty of people already familiar with the asset. It's a very leverageable asset. Um, it, it's, it sucks a little for the private equity guys, because you're going to have to pay a high EBITDA multiple. So you're going to have to put a bunch of equity, but you can throw seven turns of leverage on this company without a problem. You know, it's been like, seven and a half times leverage. I mean, right. before the IPO, it was right. Yeah, it was for the most of its history, it's been seven and a half times leverage without any problem because it grows and doesn't have any cycles. So, like, what's going to happen? Um, like, you know. Um, so, it's a very private equity, equity attractive story. Um, I think the setup from here is these guys, you know, private equity firms, they know how to get, you know, this is not an IR department that like just got hired out of nowhere, right? Like, they know that they got to find guys that know how to tell the story to people and explain to people. And, find the pitch and go to the right conferences. They have all the right sell side coverage, you know, like it's, it's, it's not an orphaned weird asset. And so, you know, I think the story for here is, you know, they have to pay down a little bit of debt because of the settlement funding this year. So it's a little bit of a weird uptick that this year's free cash flow isn't around, but like, you know, 12 months forward, you know, it's going to be buybacks. I mean, dividend, whatever you want to talk about with like their, their cash M and a, whatever exactly it is. It kind of depends how the stock trades. But it is not one of these things where I think like if, if two years from now, the stock is at the same price that like you're just going to like wait it out and see what happens. Like, I think you're going to absolutely 
see these guys put this thing for up for sale if it's if it's not going to happen in the public market. And, and so, and it's five fifty of EBITDA this year. You know, two years from now, it, it's almost unthinkable that EBITDA wouldn't be six hundred or six hundred fifty or something. And that's ignoring M and just, I just wanted to briefly touch on M and A. You know, this is a fifty five to sixty percent outsourced business. Uh, it's been in private equity hands a lot. That outsourcing race increases, and it's kind of a duopoly. Though there are some smaller players out there. And m and I mean, I think the other thing, the reason private equities love this so much is, and management talks about it, they clearly want to do M&A. M&A has been in their genes, and I think M&A can be really, really interesting here. Do you want to just talk about the, the bolt-on possibilities and why that kind of is good for these guys? Sure. So the other, there's two other divisions, one of which is Nordian, which is basically a monopoly supplier of cobalt. Um, I'll just very, very hit, quickly hit on it. The barrier to entry there is you have to talk someone into putting a new thing that could blow up a nuclear reactor. So there's no comp competition whatsoever for that thing. It's a nice little business, grows like 10% top line too. Say that's like 10% of EBITDA. And then Nelson Labs is, um, or 15%. And Nelson Labs is the other third division, um, which is about 15% of EBITDA also. And it's really the M&A story for this business. It's where they want to direct the most of their M&A. Um, and what they do is it's another, they are having a little bit of a cost versus revenue thing. And so it's a very minor part of the story, in my opinion, frankly, but like another little part of the story is like, you should see a normalization in that business, but like what they're trying to do in that segment is they're basically trying to say that. So what Nelson does is it does, um, you want to make a heart stent. Okay. But you want to use a new plastic how do you get that through FDA approval? And Nelson does everything from like providing, you know, uh, consulting on like, this is what the FDA is looking at now. Here's where we're at to like, we're going to take a rat and sew a piece of the plastic into the rat and like let it live for a couple of weeks and then break his neck and look at what happened to the rat. Like, that's what we do. Um, and so it, that's kind of what it does, but it's a pretty niche kind of thing. And again, it's just like the, the pitches that it's like sterilization 20 years ago, where it's like, it's again, it's like, does it make your beer better? No, this is not an area that you guys really know about. Outsister to us, we're on top of the science. We're on top of the stuff. We're on top of what the FDA wants. And hey, J&J, &J, do you want the headlines? J&J breaks five rats next during testing yeah, yeah. for a device. Give that reputational risk to us. Yeah, exactly. So they, you just sort of play it off. And there's a lot of smaller players out there that kind of do this stuff. And so like, there's an opportunity to like, roll it out and build this business. And also while you're building the business with M&A, also grow your share with the companies because like the more bulk you have, the easier the contract is, the easier, do you really want to have this in-house? Do it outsource, so, you know what I mean? So it has this nice kind of thing. And frankly, a lot of the customers, I mean, almost all the customers are the same customers that Sterigenics has. So there's a complete overlap. They have separate right now, which is important for legal liability, they had separate go-to-market kind of thing. So they really are two separate businesses inside it. It's definitely a holding company, two separate businesses, but there's a very obvious overlap in that like, they basically sell to almost the same exact department inside like the med device company. And so I, I think like over time, you know, they've done well in acquisitions in the past. Right now, the segment has this little you know, revenue growth versus cost kind of thing, um, which is mainly just hiring people, it's people business non-asset business really um but i think there's a very nice you know the core this business is already growing like say 10 percent top line if you actually throw like an m&a pipeline and, and there is a lot of these companies out there that you could look to roll up there are a lot of these companies that roll up. like 
you could easily push this to like a mid teens. You know, you're taking all the free cash flow, but like you could definitely see this thing grow 15% top line and like 15% non cyclical top line growers do not trade 15 times earnings. That is and most importantly, the MA should be pretty accretive because A, you're buying, there aren't a lot of other buyers for smaller companies in this industry, you would think. And B, you should, as you were alluding to, they should have fantastic synergies, right? Hey, we're yeah. going to buy you. We're the largest player in this quirky industry. When we buy you, you know, if you're a one-off sterilization facility, we plug you into, we're, we deal with every single major medical player in the world. We plug you into all of them to fill your supply. If you're just a quirky little consulting set, well, we have reputation. We have relationship with every major medical person. You might only be working with one or two. So you should have great like cross-selling synergies through those things. So all your M&A should be quite accretive if, if done correctly, but. It looks and has been, with notwithstanding the last 12 months, a very classic looking private equity roll-up strategy of you get the bulkhead going and exactly. they come yep. in at lower multiples, we trade at a higher multiple, and then there's a tremendous cross-synergy across the assets. Yeah. Uh, last question I want to ask, and then maybe we can do last thoughts and wrap it up. There, were, One person did say, hey... You know, we we talked about the legal. You talked earlier about uh, there's a trend towards outsourcing, both because it makes sense, it doesn't make your beer better, but also because you kind of want to avoid the legal headache. So why not put that on to outsource? One person did comment, "Hey, is pricing in this industry gonna go crazy now that the you know that legal overhangs over there? They used to take three to five percent pricing. Can they just start going back to customer and be like, hey, nobody wants to deal with this legal risk. We've got all these legal costs, like." Does pricing accelerate because just nobody wants to take on new risk from this? I think like that's definitely, I think that is a very high probability kind of event. I think it's very captive at this point, like demand wise. Um, yeah, I think I, the answer is yes. And I also think like, it's one of those things, like I think it's super prob high probability for all the reasons you laid out, but like you're certainly not paying for it anyway. So it's yeah. like, you know, you don't need to talk me more into wanting to so to own so terror at $17 a share. Uh, cool. Look, I think we hit everything. I think hopefully we've covered great business, reasonable multiple, potential catalyst, legal situation. Anything we didn't talk about here that you think people should be thinking about or that you kind of think about with the company? Uh, no, I mean, we didn't talk about Lorne and, and Nelson, but I don't Small think- piece of the business and it, you know, I, yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty fun and interesting. I like, I particularly like Lorne. I think it's a, just a fun company. Um, hey, anytime you can deal with Russian nuclear waste, why not? Uh, why not get excited about it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no. The, the only other final thing is your mustache. We haven't addressed your mustache yet. The the classic elephant in the room. I, I shaved it yesterday. I had a uh, meeting up with a group of guys. I thought they would be figuratively tickled by the mustache, so I shaved it and uh, thinking about keeping it for a while. I, I was telling you before. I can only see above your mouth when you popped on the Zoom, and I thought you were joining me in the mustache crew. I um I, I try I try to shave my face one time a year to just keep track of what it looks like, and I like I do a little mustache thing. <laughs> Next time you come on the pod, when you come on for the fourth appearance, I expect you to have a mustache to join me. Sounds good. Sounds good. Cool. Well, hey Chris, this has been awesome. I uh, appreciate you coming on. I mean, look, you and I we've been following it for a while. You more successfully than me, but this is a really interesting story and. I'm with you. You know, I think this is a great business trading at a reasonable multiple. And I think you just get a, a little tailwind as people get more and more comfortable with the legal overhang being behind them and their results produce. And it's hard to see how, how the results don't come in at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, Chris McIntyre, thanks so much. And we will chat soon. Yep. Sounds good. Appreciate it.
A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.